Good morning, and welcome to another edition of the Palcast, the podcast from the White Coat Underground. I'm your host, Peter Lipson, an internist in the Midwestern United States. I am a blogger at scienceblogs.com slash whitecoatunderground. And here we discuss, and by we I mean me, uh, issues regarding medicine and how it affects the lives of real people. A listener wrote me recently asking what happened to my theme song, and nothing happened to the theme song. Uh, The artist was demanding some royalties, uh, waffles, but more importantly, the idea of a theme song was bothering me. You see, I've been listening to more podcasts lately as I've hooked my iPod up in the car, and uh, a lot of them have these theme songs, and one, the music's usually terrible, but whatever, and two, I sit here thinking, why am I listening to a a crappy theme song? I want to hear what the people have to say. It's just taking up time. So uh, I'm leaving out the theme song for now. You know, it's bright and early here, and uh, I'm looking out the window, and there's a number of squirrels out there, and I didn't know this until recently, but my daughter has named all of the squirrels. She can tell them all apart, and uh, apparently they all have their own little personality. Who knew? You know, there's a uh, couple of things I wanted to touch on today. One is on what it means to practice medicine. Now, lately on the uh, blog, we've had a discussion, which I entered reluctantly, about healthcare reform. And part of what I brought up, and I knew this wasn't going to be all that popular, was physician compensation and how we deal with that problem. But ignoring for a moment the specifics of that discussion, practicing medicine is a privilege, but it's also a job and you need to be compensated for it. But certain aspects of it, you got to know going into medicine that, that you're serving. And this is something I have to talk to my residents and med students about. You know what? I was lucky. When I went into medicine, I just love working with difficult people. Okay, no people are difficult, but okay, some people are difficult. And I like working with that population. I like working with really pleasant people, too. But, you know, people who have problems with drugs and alcohol or people with just personality problems that get in the way of their health care, I, I enjoy the challenge. Excuse me, the coffee's making noise. Just hold on one second here. Okay, thanks for your patience. The coffee did not come out good. It's what my father would refer to as pishachs. Anyway, I know a few people who might say I enjoy working with so-called difficult patients because I'm a difficult person myself, but ignoring that possibility for a moment, there are people in this world who other people do not like to help. There is, in altruism, a certain expectation that you will be repaid, as it were, by other people's thanks and adoration. This, of course, is not always true. Um, If you look at various philosophies of charity, for instance, uh, the one I'm most familiar with is the Jewish one. Uh, uh, Jewish charity is is called tzedakah, which roughly translated, I'm told, means righteousness because it's something you are expected to do to be a good person. And the highest level is anonymous giving. You give to you don't know who and they don't know who gave. And this sort of selfless giving is considered sort of the morally highest. 
and I'm not going to pretend that I'm morally uh, high on anything, but I entered medicine with the expectation that I would be serving and that while some people might appreciate that, others might not, and that's the way it is. In fact, I frequently encounter people who not only don't appreciate my care, but really don't appreciate my care. But I'm in a fortunate position of teaching medical students and residents, and I get to pass on a little bit of this uh, wisdom to them that we serve. You may or may not take care of difficult patients for your entire career, and if you're smart, you won't take care exclusively of very difficult patients. But you have to know, going into this, that is part of the job. There are people out there who nobody else wants to take care of, whether for financial reasons, for personality reasons, for psychiatric reasons. Not only do you need to learn how to take care of them to be a good doctor, but you need to embrace taking care of them as a service to society. It is good for your soul. So suck it up. It's interesting because um, I do get to work with a lot of doctors who trained in other countries, and a lot of other countries have a service requirement in order for the state to pay for your medical school. And the service requirement often re requires going to either rural or urban blighted areas that are you know, horribly underserved. And yeah, I think that's incredible. And a, a lot of times these underserved populations are incredibly grateful for the care they get. Part of becoming a doctor is learning to live without that expression of appreciation because not all of the underserved populations you deal with are appreciative. People with various drug problems or other psychiatric problems are sometimes not happy, nice people. And you have to know going in that taking care of these people is just important as just as important, excuse me, as taking care of anybody else. And you have to take care of them without the expectation of warm fuzziness. How did I screw up this coffee this morning? It is absolutely see-through. Well, I'll just digress briefly for a moment here. Last night, I stayed up far too late chatting online with some really interesting folks. One of them is uh, Isis the Scientist from the... Uh, science blogs blog of uh, that name. Actually, it's got a much longer name, but that's the, you know, after the slash. And of uh, Arikia of the Millican Daily. And you can Google either of those and you'll find them. And a host of other people. And, uh, you know, these are some really smart, funny people. And I have no idea what we talked about. But one of the things about maintaining a vibrant intellectual life, and I do also encourage doctors to do that, is just being able to talk with other interesting people, and the other part assumes that you yourself are interesting as well, and bouncing ideas off of them. I, I learned this when I went to Science Online last year, which is a fascinating conference of bloggers. Actually, it might have been earlier this year, but either way, whenever the hell it was, uh, just Talking to people of other disciplines and not being surrounded only by physicians, really, I, I, I learned an enormous amount about thinking, about science, about creativity. All right, end of digression. And beginning of a new digression, uh, I had a nice opportunity last week to give a uh, talk slash lead a discussion with uh, some physicians in training about 
how to be a doctor and maintain an online presence and not violate both the law and your own ethics. And that was interesting, if I do say so myself, but not because of what I said, but because of what the residents said and what they didn't say. In fact, not that many of them spoke up during the talk, but a number of them came up to me afterwards. It turns out that once you remind people that being online is kind of like shouting stuff from, you know, a rooftop onto a crowded street, their perspective on what they write changes rather rapidly, as well it should. Physicians have certain responsibilities that other people do not. And while perhaps other people should or may in an ethical sense, physicians have this obligation in both a professional ethical sense and in a legal sense. We have a expectation, both legally and professionally, that we will not reveal significant patient information. And that is probably the first most important rule of being a physician online. But there are subtler points as well. And once again, this can apply to anyone, not just physicians, but especially for physicians. It is never wise to say a lot of things that you wouldn't want your patients and colleagues to hear. If you were to, say, tweet that you were so wasted last night that you left your stethoscope in a bar or something like that, you know, there's nothing wrong with getting wasted. Doctors are allowed to get wasted when they're not working. But your patients and colleagues might look at that, and even if they don't consciously think it, but they will, they are thinking, do I really want to work with somebody who's out getting wasted? Now, my answer to that is not only do I want to work with them, but I want to go out and have a drink with them. But that's not how everybody thinks. Oh, and speaking of which, it looks like in my part of the country, there may finally, finally be a skeptics meetup. This is simply a pilot program. Uh, in this part of the country, we're a little busy trying not to starve to death, drown in debt, etc. So these sorts of meetings kind of take a backseat to more pressing economic issues. But there are certain folks who seem to want to get together, and it looks like we might. And if we do, I will report back on the success of SAME and whether we're going to do it again with a wider level of participation. Anyway, back to service. Doctors are a service profession, but once again, that does not mean we work for free. I have very little patience for people who get angry about how much doctors supposedly make and think that this is the low-hanging fruit that must be plucked in healthcare reform. And not because there aren't reforms necessary in physicians' compensation. Some doctors undoubtedly are paid too much and some are paid too little. But that's not the point. The point is there's a feeling of, uh, it's, it, it's a sense of uh, punitive justice. I think it reveals a certain distaste for either doctors or for the undemocraticness of professionalism. That is, and we've talked about this before, the fact that we do need professionals in various aspects of our life, and that seems terribly unfair that somebody else knows more than I do, but it's true. I, for instance, don't want to drive over the Bay Bridge if they tell me some dude from the bar 
who they never met, was the guy who drew up the plans. Physicians are professionals in whom we put our very lives. Compensating them for that fairly is not an unwise thing to do. And while, as I've stated, we need to remember that we serve, and we need to remember that we serve, no one should be expected to work for free or in an undercompensated way. Now, any individual economic actor is going to want more money, and that is not always possible. But I do think a lot of the people calling for cuts in physicians' pay, whether it's policy people or op-ed letters or letters on my blog or comments on my blog, don't seem to be thinking of the big picture of how to save money in healthcare. They just want to stick it to the doctors. And I often wonder whether they're thinking that they want to stick it to a particular doctor. And I'd like them to remember that maybe it's just a particular doctor. But believe it or not, in this whole healthcare reform debate, the thing that scares me the most is not potential cuts to my pay. Uh, that would probably be impossible without, you know, asking me to pay to be a doctor. It's the incredibly irresponsible fear-mongering, which, as usual, seems to be coming more from the right than from the left. And their talking points are working. I have patients talk to me every day saying, well, doc, I don't know if I'm going to be able to see you anymore because Obama's not going to let me choose my doctor. Um, where the hell do they think Obama is going to send them? To some health farm to see a strange doctor? I mean, under any plan, you still need doctors. And quite honestly, the only limitations on doctors are usually seen with private HMOs and to also a certain extent private PPOs, another you know, model of private health insurance. The only system in which you have complete, nearly, freedom of choice in choosing a doctor is the government-run program, Medicare. Medicare places no limitations on who you can see or where you can go. As long as that person has chosen to participate in Medicare, they're paying the bill. But people are credulous, and they're going to suck up whatever talking point they hear on the radio from whichever idiot it is, whether it's Rush Limbaugh or whether it's Michelle Bachman. I think my tongue just fell out of my mouth for saying that name. I heard her lovely voice on the radio explaining how the current health care reform bill being discussed would require euthanasia counseling for seniors. This, of course, is bullshit. I have, unfortunately, read some of the meatier parts of this bill, and I generally find that when I go to the bill and look at the actual wording versus what I hear on the radio, there is a little discrepancy. The bill as it is currently allows seniors to have counseling on various care issues, end-of-life issues, whatever they need. It does not require a patient and their physician to sit down and talk about euthanasia. It allows a patient to have a visit to discuss, say, hospice and palliative care and have it paid for so that they don't have to pay for it out of pocket. The only way in which that differs from our current system is that the visit would actually be paid for by the insurance plan instead of by the patient. You see, currently, the way doctors are paid, it comes back to that again, is we get paid for doing stuff. If I see a patient who has diabetes and I change around their medications, et cetera, et cetera, I get a small fee for having met with the patient and done that. If 
I sit down and talk to a patient about, say, their cancer or about their marriage, and I sit and counsel them for, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever, it's very difficult to bill for that. And either the patient will pay for it out of pocket, which is unlikely because the insurance companies might not allow it, or more likely, I just don't get paid. This provision simply allows a physician to be reimbursed for the time spent once every five years with a patient discussing certain issues like end-of-life care, hospice, home nursing, this sort of issue. It certainly does not mandate that anybody talk about it. But if you listen to the right-wing radio shows and turn on Fox News, you'd think we're going to chop up Grandpa for Soylent Green as soon as the bill passes. And if you don't know what Soylent Green is, you're younger than me and you need to Google it. Now, we started off talking about service in medicine and how one of our responsibilities is to recognize that it is service. We have a privilege. We are allowed to know and see and otherwise invade the privacy of other individuals in order to help them. But with that access comes special responsibility. And not only does that responsibility include respecting their privacy and their person, but also respecting them. It means recognizing that you don't have to like someone to take care of them, although it's nice. Which comes down to, once again, healthcare reform, a topic I never wanted to write about or talk about. But right now we have this problem of crushing debt burdens on young physicians. And I say young, that's just when their debt starts. The debt is pretty much throughout a good portion of their career. Physicians are leaving medical school with debts in the $200,000 to $250,000 range. This pushes them into high-paying, super-subspecialties instead of going into primary care, where really a lot of the fun is and where the need is as well. So why don't we at least consider doing some of the things that other countries do? And that is subsidizing medical education in exchange for service. Right now, we have underserved areas that nobody wants to practice in, whether they're very rural or very urban. Doctors don't want to go there. And right now, they're staffed by international medical graduates who are basically willing to practice anywhere as long as it's in the U.S. And there's nothing wrong with that model, except that that does not create a permanent base of practitioners for these areas. It sort of relies on a whole bunch of contingencies. And while I enjoy the fact that we bring people from all over the world to train, uh, it allows us to show off our system, it allows us to show off our country, it's good for us in general, I think we also need to take our local medical grads and get them into the same areas. Right now, there's no incentive to do that. There's some little loan repayment programs through the Public Health Service and Indian Health Service, but they're not significant. Right now, it's much easier to just choose a super subspecialty, make a gajillion dollars a year, and uh, pay it back that way. And that's how we'll end up with way too many dermatologists. But if we built in a requirement and made it an expectation for every single medical student, you will, after attending four years of medical school, or perhaps after a year of internship, you will go to an area that is underserved, whether it's an inner city or rural area, 
or just a suburban area that doesn't have enough primary care physicians, and you will serve the public. You do that for one year in exchange for a modest salary to live on and a very expensive education. Instead of leaving medical school with $230,000 in loans, you will leave with none and simply serve a year rather than the rest of your life toiling to pay off your loans. I would have been ecstatic to have such a system, and I think many young physicians would, and, you know, there are those who would not. Typically, people say, oh my God, you're limiting our freedom, but no, it's quid pro quo. In fact, it's a bargain. One year for a young person to serve gives them four years of medical education and the rest of their life debt-free. Seems like a bargain to me. But the little one's going to wake up soon, and we've come to the end of another PalCast. Please visit me online at the White Coat Underground, that's scienceblogs.com slash whitecoatunderground, and occasionally at sciencebasedmedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.